0: All right. Well, good morning. You know, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we are studying as a church. We are going through the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, open to 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel is, is towards the beginning of your Bible. looks like about the first, like like, bit, you know, like maybe about... in. So if you just kind of flip through that first like quarter of the Bible, you should be able to see first and second Samuel. They're both pretty long. And uh, we are in chapter three this morning. Chapter Chapter 13 this morning. So just checking to see if you're paying attention. So, uh, Chapter 13 this morning, you know, and, and you know if you're if you haven't been with us in our story, let me just bring us up to speed a little bit. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at a passage where like the nation of Israel had appointed themselves a king, and God had promised like deliverance through their king, even though their desire for a king was was really like diso- a disobedient desire. God gave them what they wanted, which which cost them. Also, like He would redeem that the monarchy to to bring salvation to the nation of Israel and. And, then, and so in chapter 11, there was this great victory that we studied two weeks ago. And then last week, we looked at how the nation of Israel returned to this place called Gilgal, and they, re, Gilgal, and they rededicated themselves to the Lord there. And, and what kind of transpired there was that, was that Samuel recounted to the nation of Israel God's like, unbelievable faithfulness to them over the, like, over the centuries, really. He, did, he, he demonstrated to them God's unbelievable faithfulness to them and then just pointed out how like their faithfulness in response to the Lord so dramatically fell short. In fact, they rejected the Lord after he had been faithful to them, like for century after century after century. And, the, and the, people had, the people were convicted of their sin and they're convicted of their idolatry and convicted of their disobedience to the Lord. And, and they were afraid. And Samuel re, re, reminded them, like, you don't need to be afraid because like, God will not abandon his people, so just pursue him. Like the, the the reality is, is that because of the what we just sang of, of the work of Jesus Christ, like we have access to God and we don't need to fear because there is like abundant grace and forgiveness in him. You know, the, the chapter ended, chapter 12 ended with this warning though upon the nation of Israel and upon their king. And and it's, he says this in chapter 1 Samuel 12, 24 and 25. He says, only fear the Lord and serve him with all of your heart. Or serve him in truth with all of your heart. And if you look at the context of that, he's talking about serving him in truth like genuinely and serving him like in, in accordance with his word. That's, that's what he had said earlier in verses 14 and 15. But serve him in truth with all of your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. So there's this warning at the end of chapter 12, uh, and there, there's really this question, because we've, saw, we've seen King Saul act in one instance, but what will King Saul's like, uh, testimony be as he goes through life? And he's going to be faced with a, a crisis in our text today, and what we're going to find out is that is Saul's response to the Lord in that is the critical moment, and we're going to find out if he's going to be a king who serves the Lord in truth with all of his heart, or whether he'll do wickedly and be swept away. You know, and, um, you know, what what will he do is really the question. And what will we do is before us, you know, are we going to be those who fear the Lord, who serve him in truth, who do it genuinely with all of our heart? um, Or are we just going to be people who, like, play religion with hopes that we can get God on our side? You know, our our chapter is going to break out into three main sections this morning. First one in verses 1 through 7 is that the enemies provoke. That's the crisis. There's this big military crisis that they face. We're going to see that King Saul oversteps in verses 8 through 14. And then in verses 15 through 23, we're going to see things get really bad and the situation will will worsen. So please stand with me as we read God's word if you're able. I'm going to read verses 1 through, actually I'm going to read verses 2 through 7. I'll explain why I'm skipping verse 1 because I'll go back to it in just a minute. I'm going to read verses 2 through 7 and then um, we'll pray and then we'll get into our study together. This is God's word for His church. Now Saul chose for himself three thousand men of Israel, of which two thousand were with him in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, while a thousand were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent the rest of the people each to his tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines and also that, the, that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for... uh, the history that it teaches us, um, your, uh, the, how it teaches us of your faithfulness to your people, and how ultimately it points us to our true King, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I just ask this morning um, that Jesus would be lifted up, that we would love him more because of um, his faithfulness to us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the reason why I skipped uh, verse one, let me just uh, go back, circle back around there, is that verse one in the original Hebrew is a really, is a really like strangely written verse that if you were just to translate it like most, like, like a, like a translation, it doesn't really make sense. Like, uh, verse one reads in the Hebrew, now Saul was years old when he began to reign and he reigned two years over Israel. So it's this kind of ambiguous thing where some commentators actually think that, that, uh, that the the person writing the book of 1 Samuel didn't know how old Saul was, so he left a blank in there. That's kind of how it reads. He was blank years old when he began to reign. That the and the person was going to go back and fill it in, and never went back and filled it in. So all of the ancient texts read with as if there's this blank there. And then it has this strange statement that that uh, Saul reigned for two years. Now some of your your translations are. The reason why i didn 't read it is because every translation I looked at handled that difficulty differently to the point where some translations stuck pretty close. Some translations then went and looked around the rest of the scriptures and found out like how long did Saul really reign and then add, they added that data back in to try to make the sentence make sense and and it 's just one of those things when you 're looking at a three thousand year old text and our limit language of the of their language back, our knowledge of the language back then is somewhat limited. Um, we're not exactly sure how to handle that verse, right? Because Saul was more than it was not just one year old, right? At this point in the story, he has a son. We're going to find out it, it, this is blank years old, and and so some commentators kind of take the position that like the fill in the blank thing that never got filled in position. But I think there's a simpler there's a simpler explanation. Um, None of these are absolutely perfect explanations about verse one, but the simplest explanation I think, and the one that makes the most sense to me, anyway. And if you if you want to geek out about this later, feel free to give me a call, and I can copy a bunch of like like Bible geek stuff and send it to you about this. You know, if you if you want, because uh, because it's some people like myself might be interested in that. But the simple explanation is, I think what the I think what the author is telling us is that um, the, the, the Saul was like maybe like. His his reign was a year old when he entered into this conflict in this story, that this was happening maybe in the second year of his reign, just after he finished reigning for a year. But then there's this statement that actually is in the ancient text where his reign was only two years long. And, and we know from other places in the Bible, even from the book of 1 Samuel itself, that his reign was way longer than two years. And I think what the author is doing is he's tipping his hand to something that there's going to be something unusually brief about King Saul's like, monarchy. And that his monarchy is going to really come to an end in about two years, even though he sits on the throne for 40 and he's, and he's telling, he's kind of like raising this question, because the people reading this would have known like King Saul reigned for more than two years. Like, what, what are you getting at when you say he's only two years? And it's a question that would provoke people's minds that this chapter begins to answer for us. It doesn't completely answer it for us, but it, it begins to answer it for us. And so there's this question lingering in people's minds, like, why was King Saul's reign so brief? I thought he reigned for 40 years, which is what other places of the Bible tell us. And and we'll see over the next few chapters why that's the case and how it came to an end. And it, even though it didn't come to an end like physically and literally, it came to an end spiritually because God removed his blessing from King Saul in the chapters to come. Again, if you have any questions about that, feel free to shoot them in my direction. I'm happy to... To talk about that. But really, the story begins for us then in, chapter, in verse 2. And what we find out is that after King Saul had had become king, he, he makes the first standing army in the nation of Israel. And the standing army consists of 3,000 people. And he takes 2,000 of them and goes and settles in the town of, of, of Michmash. That's probably not how to pronounce it, but I like the way it sounds, Michmash. And so I'm just going to go with that, right? So... He, he takes two thousand and he lives in the city of Micmash and Jonathan stays in their hometown of Gibeah um, with a thousand of the soldiers and there 's lots of like city names and movements of people in this text, and so i I actually looked for a map for a long time and couldn 't find a map and so I hand drew a map that you all get to benefit from this morning so here 's my artwork where is it there it is Is that a beautiful? Is that a beautiful map, or what but uh, so, the, the original, yeah, in print. I'm keeping the original. So. so what you have is Michmash there, and the yellow S represents where Saul is. The yellow J is where uh, Jonathan is, and the red P is where we find out that the Philistines are because it says that uh, that Jonathan went and attacked the, the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And so I have the next, the next slide. This is an interactive map, right? You guys are getting your money's worth this morning, right? So, so Jonathan goes and attacks the, the Philistine garrison at Geba. And that's what pre, like, that precipitates this entire event. And so, what it says in our text that we just read is that is that King Saul then sent word throughout all of Israel about the victory, and he it says he blew the trumpet throughout all Israel. So he went from city to he sent messengers throughout this country of Israel, talking about talking about two things. It says one that that he, because as king, like he gets credit for everything that people do below him. I'll remember that one. Um, how was the coffee this morning? So no, I'm, not, I'm just kidding about that. But, but. The, uh, where was I? <laughs> verse three. Geba and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news, verse four, that one, that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and two, that Israel had become odious to the Philistines, or that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, right? Like whenever like you were to, if the Philistine guys were getting together for a beer and they're like, hey, what do you think about your Israelite neighbor? They like, right? They like wrinkle up their nose, man. They stink, right? Like I hate those guys. That's that's the message. And so what King Saul is doing by sending the messengers is he's calling the nation to arms because they, this is the first time they had a standing army. And every other time that there was a crisis like this, that, that the citizen militia would respond. So he's calling the nation to respond. And it says that, that they were to meet with him at Geba. And so what happens is Saul and Jonathan both then move to the city, I mean, not to Gilgal. They move to the town of Gilgal um, to, to assemble the troops, and they're calling everybody to, to assemble there with them. And then we find out that the Philistine response to this, like this garrison being killed, a garrison's probably about 500 soldiers, this garrison's being killed in verse 5, is that they assembled this humongous army, right? It's so huge that people like have a hard time believing that it's that it's even this big. But this is how it's described in verse five. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel thirty thousand chariots. Like the chariot was like the tank of the day. Like he had thirty thousand pieces of armor to attack the army of the three thousand Jews. Right. He had six thousand horsemen. He had. And he had infantry that was more numerable than the stand of the sea. Like this is an unbelievably, like, overwhelming response of the Philistines to deal with the problem that Jonathan had just attacked their garrison at at Geba and like killed them and so the Philistines end up coming then to Mi'kmash because that's where Saul just was right so they had they had potentially they must have heard that Saul had been encamped in in Michmash and they're like we're gonna go to Mi'kmash and deal with this problem that that in this so-called King Saul who's leading this rebellion against us because if you we haven't made a big deal of it as we've gone through, but what's going on with the nation of Israel at this time, you could see this back in chapter 10, is that the Philistines had, were were occupying them. They were like an occupied country. That's why there was a garrison in the city of Giba, And now you've got this rebellion against the Philistines being led by this new king that they appointed, King Saul. So the Philistines are coming to deal with it like harshly and severely. you guys see the story unfolding. Saul heads to Gilgal, the Philistine army is is searching him, and they end up encamping at Michmash. And, and for all practical purposes, like things for the nation of Israel at this point are like catastrophically bleak. In fact, the people of Israel figured that out on their own. They didn't need me to tell them. Look what happens in verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait for the people... Uh, for the people who were hard pressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. So they're like, "We're out of here!" So they, everybody, like, abandons their homes and they're hiding everywhere that they can find to hide. Whether it's in like a bunch of blackberry bushes, whether it's in like some cellar that they had dug somewhere, whether it's in a pit or in, in a cave. They're hiding out. And then verse 7, it's just like in Ukraine today. And some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. And the people followed him trembling. So the people that weren't hiding out went clear off to the right of your map in the region of Gad and Gilead. crossed the river Jordan because that river Jordan would have provided some sort of natural barrier for them so they could escape this Philistine army. The people of Israel were running and hiding in terror from this Philistine threat you guys see it? And then it says to us then that Saul was still in Gilgal, and the brave ones that didn't flee like and hide out like everybody else were following him, trembling. So Saul's like, beginning to muster this army at Gilgal, and everyone is absolutely terrified because this Philistine army is so massive. Let me just pause there for a second before we go into our, our next point. You know, like... I, I think oftentimes for us, like God will lead his people in a place where they are up against such overwhelming like circumstances that they, that there's just no way they can handle it on their own, right? He might lead them to a place where they're out of their resources, they're, they're way outnumbered. You're out of your depth as a person, like you, like you're brought to the end of yourself. You guys know what I'm talking about? And it's in those times of like crisis, like this one. It's in those times of crisis where what we really worship and what we really depend on like manifests itself most clearly, regardless of what we say, and regardless of what we of of like what re, like religious trappings we put upon it. Like ultimately, like when we're like when we're squeezed by the circumstances and trials and difficulties of life, it exposes who we really are and who we really trust in that's what was going on with Saul we're going to see that in just a minute but what was going on with Saul is he's being he's being like put into a situation that is completely hopeless but it's going to get more hopeless before we're done but he's put into a situation where everyone like is terrified to the point where they're fleeing the country and here's Saul like, like needing to lead them to victory against this overwhelming force. You know, I think for a lot of us, like 2020 and 2021 functioned that way. Like a lot of the things that we relied upon got stripped away from us, like pressures of different things, whether it's job or isolation or laws or whatever, got like began crushing down on us. You know what I'm talking about? And, and probably exposed some things like, what do we really worship where do we really place our hope? Who is it that we're really going to follow? Where's our security found? You know, Moses talked to the nation of Israel before they went into the promised land. So this was a couple hundred years before this. But Moses had talked to the nation of Israel in his, in his last message to them before he died. And... um And he warned them about when they went into the land of promise, it was going to be a land overflowing with milk and honey and a land where everything they had would multiply, where their their houses would multiply and their crops would multiply and their herds would multiply and and they would have everything materially that they thought that they wanted. And and he had given them a warning um, about how, and he said, not to to say that your hand and your wealth, your hand and your power made you all that wealth. But, but at the beginning of that, that section, he reminds them of God leading them into the wilderness. So, you know, in the years before that, the Lord had led them out into the desert where there was no water and there was no food. And there was this nation of Israel that Moses was leading and needing to feed. And God led them where there was nothing. And this is what God says about that. In Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 3, it says, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments hurt or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, that man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. See what Moses is saying there? He's saying like, "Hey, when those circumstances come where your longings are unfulfilled, and where you're hungry and you're thirsty, and and when the circumstances crush down on you, that God has intention in that to test you, to see what was really in your heart. Like He doesn't need to know that. Like I mean, He doesn't need from inform- like new information. So that what does it say? So that we might understand. It's like we need the understanding." that God will bring us into circumstances of testing that are way beyond our strength so that we could learn that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Like, life is found in him. Life is found in keeping his commandments, Or, right? That's what he's saying. That's what, that's what Samuel had told Saul. Like, hey, if you like serve the Lord in truth like serve him according to like his desires and according to his word and follow after him then your kingdom will endure like the one thing that we need to do is follow the lord and like be obedient to him and recognize that he like guides us and governs us through his word and he'll put us in situations that test that and that's what brings us to point 2 the king oversteps and if you thought it was bad before look what happened starting in verse 8 Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So here's the situation. Saul takes his army of 3,000 men down to Gilgal where they're trying to like muster up a bigger army, like calling on the citizen militia to come. And, And he finds out that we find out that in the text that Samuel had said like, hey, I'll be there in a week. And when I come there, we're going to find out that he was going to offer some sacrifices. He was going to pray to the Lord on their behalf, things like that. So wait there for a week. I'll be there in a week. And then we can handle the Philistine problem. But what does it say in verse 8? That instead of like mustering an army, the people were scattering from him. You know, in fact, like if you go back to the map, um, I don't think I have this one on there. But this This dotted line from Bethel to Jericho was one of the main roads that went through the Pass of Michmash there. And so all these people like fleeing from that direction would have been marching right past Gilgal as they were going to cross the Jordan River and get out of Israel. And so imagine this for a second. You're one of the armies of Israel, and you're camped there with King Saul, and all of these fellow Israelites that aren't hiding out are just fleeing the country the first day and the second day. And the third day, and the fourth day, and the fifth, like, right? And 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 when when it says there that the people were scattering from him, his army wasn't getting bigger; it was getting smaller. Like people were people were like, yeah, that's not really a bad idea. I'm gonna head out across the river. They can probably see the river from where they're camped. I'm gonna head across the river and be out of here too. And so Saul's placed in this situation of like waiting in the midst of this crisis day after day after day you know maybe it's the waiting that's even the worst part about it i have that like, personality like when there's something that's bad's going to happen i'm like let's just get it over with right like anybody else like that how many of you like to know like you know i'll say you know, i'll say hey eric i need to meet with you right like um, for whatever reason whenever i say that to somebody they think it's something bad right like <laughs> like uh Okay, just tell me what it's about, right? You know what I'm talking about? But this is like God put Saul and the armies of Israel in this situation where they had to wait day after day after day as they're observing their, their countrymen flee the country. And sometimes when we're faced with like something that's like out of our control, that waiting is the hardest part about it. And so that's what proved to be the news of Israel. And Saul's like, man, my army is getting smaller, not bigger. The Philistines who chased me to Michmash, who went to Michmash thinking I would be there. That's what the red line represents. There's this Philistine threat that pretty soon they're going to find out that we're here in Gilgal, and they're going to march down the road, and they're going to slaughter us. I can't wait for Samuel any longer, so I'm going to take actions into my own hands, and look what he does. So Saul said bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings and he offered the burnt offerings and it came about that as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering that behold Samuel came and Samuel went out and Saul went out to meet him and greet him but Samuel said what have you done and Saul said because i saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the philistines were assembling at micmash therefore i said now the philistines will come down against me at gilgal and i have not asked the favor of the lord so i forced myself and offered the burnt offering so here's, what, here's the situation. is that Saul's like, man, Samuel was supposed to offer up these offerings, but he's not offering them. I'm out of time, so I'm going to take action myself. And I'm going to offer up the offerings. So he asked them to bring the offerings to him. And it says that he offers up the burnt offering. There was two offerings there. The, the peace offerings spoken of there were, were more just offerings given in worship and in thanksgiving to God. The burnt offering was specific because it specifically had to do with atonement for the sins of the people. They wanted to kind of deal with their sin problem before they went and and attacked the Philistines. And just as he's wrapping it up. So like the ceremony would have been Saul, would have laid his hands on the, on the sacrifice, which represents like the transfer of, of guilt onto this animal. And then the animal would have been slaughtered. And then they would have thrown the animal on the fire and it would have been like roasting and burning there, um, as it was being offered up. And the smell of the, like the, the sacrifice would be going out throughout the whole, throughout the whole camp. And just then, Oh, and before that, then the blood would have been sprinkled on the altar, like signifying that, like, atonement comes through the shedding of blood. And Samuel shows up, and Saul like goes out to greet him, like, finally, Samuel's here. And Samuel's words to him is, "Saul, what have you done?" It was enough to put Saul in the defensive. I'm guessing he probably knew ahead of time that he shouldn't have been doing it because God had specifically commanded in his word that atonement for the sins of his people be mediated by the priests. And Saul was no priest. He wasn't from the family of priests. He was a king, but he wasn't a priest. So he overstepped his bounds. And what you have here is interesting because then he goes into this whole series of whole series of excuses that kind of remind me of Adam and Eve in the garden, but, um, Look what he says, his response in verse 11. Because I saw that the people were scattering from me. Like, my army was getting smaller, Samuel. We've got this, like, massive Philistine army, and my 3,000 men are probably dwindling, right? And you didn't come within the appointed time. It's kind of your fault. Right? Like, you said you'd be here in a week, and it's like a week and one hour. So, Samuel, this is kind of your fault. And we 're here in the plains of Gilgal, not very good defensive positions, and the Philistines are going to figure out where we are and it 's not going to be too long before they come down and slaughter us all. So I forced myself right i didn 't want to do it. I had to do it. you know in some ways, you can sympathize with Saul, right? Like it was a completely pragmatic solution. Everything he said was true the his army was fleeing. The waiting just was too hard. Samuel was late. The Philistine threat was real. He didn't know what to do, and he wanted to take action. He had this completely reasonable, pragmatic solution. The problem with it was it was a pragmatic solution that violated God's law. And so what what did Samuel say to him? He says, and Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. You know, Samuel's like, Saul, 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 Saul. Like, that was the worst thing you could have done. You've acted foolishly. Because don't think that you're going to secure God's favor. That's what he said up in verse 12. Don't think you're going to secure God's favor by disobeying God's law. All that God asked of you was to keep his word, and he would have established your kingdom forever. And yet you chose to break his word for a pragmatic solution. And and what did he say? Saul said, I had not asked the favor of the Lord. Maybe tips our hand into Saul's motive. What's he asking the favor of the Lord on? He's asking the favor of the Lord upon him, I'm sure. He's asking the favor of the Lord upon his army. He's asking the favor of the Lord upon um, upon their plan if they had one. But what he's not doing is, is recognizing God for who he is as the true king of Israel, as the one whose word is law and who he is, is called to as king to submit to. So his act is really a religious act, thinking he's going to get God on board with his plan rather than an act of submission where he submits to God as king and gets on board with God's plan. He wanted God's favor on his plan, so he went to religion. Man, we do that all the time. You know, anytime you're frustrated because like, man, Lord, I've been going to church every single Sunday and like my bank account is still overdrawn, right? Right? Or, you know, we're seeking to be faithful as a family and, like, this bad thing happens and this bad thing happens and this bad thing happens and this bad thing. Maybe God's, like, trying to expose, like, are you coming to God because of what you get from him? Trying to seek his favor on your plan? Or are you submitting to him as king, like, getting on board with his plan and recognizing that, you know, you don't live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from God's mouth? Right? And Samuel's like, he would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. There's two things that are important there. First of all, there's this promise. There's this promise that he's like, there's this removal of Saul and this appointment of somebody else. And he says, like, you know what, Saul? Your kingdom is not going to endure because you didn't keep God's word, which is grace upon Israel because like a king who's not going to like follow the word, like, the word of the Lord puts this whole nation at risk. But he says that I've, but I've already picked another king to replace you, Saul. And it says here, who has been according to who the Lord has sought out for himself, a man after his own heart and the Lord has appointed him. Like God has looked for somebody. He's found somebody that like, that's in accordance with God's affections for his people. We always kind of reverse that statement and make it about, about like the, the person that he's talking about. But it's really about like he's found a person that's in accordance with God's heart for the king and God's heart for the nation. And, and that person's kingdom will be established. We don't have a name yet. That's what this, the, the question is beginning to be answered. Like Saul's reign is going to be cut short because he disobeyed the word of the Lord. And that God has already found his replacement. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, a lot of you will probably like begin to realize like, oh, that expression has been used to describe somebody else. And and it's looking forward to somebody we're going to discover in a little bit towards King David. But it's ultimately not even about King David. And we'll talk about that towards the end. But the message to Saul was devastating. Your kingdom is going to come to an end. And God is going to replace you. In fact, he already has. Things are over, Saul, because you didn't disobey the Lord. Because the Lord' the heart for his people is that they have a righteous king to reign over them, not a disobedient one. And then we see things go from bad to worse. So look what happens in verse 15. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. So here we have our map again. So, so, So Saul took... Oh, so Samuel goes to Gibeah. I don't have that on the map. And then Saul, it says, takes his army, and they go up to Geba, which is right across from, from Michmash. In fact, like my map's not really to scale. Um, in fact, Geba and Michmash are in, within sight of each other. They're like two miles apart. And they're both on these kind of hills. And so this army that came with Saul to go meet the Philistines like, would have been on a hill. There's this valley in between, and they would have seen the Philistine army on the other side. Do you guys, you guys feeling that? Now listen to how, how bad this is. Uh, verse 15. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him about 600 men. His army was 3000. When he went down to Gilgal, he called the nation of Israel to arms. And so many people reported that he had 600 when he was done. Right? Like, like I can sympathize with Saul, right? I've got a, I've got to go against an army that's innumerable as the sand of the sea with thirty thousand tanks, and I've got six hundred men, and they're camped up on this hill, and they're having to overlook the Philistine army that's laying out before them. Keeps getting worse. Verse seventeen. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company toward turned towards Ophrah to the land of Shuol, and another company turned towards Beth Horon and another company turned towards the border which overlooks the valley of Zebuim toward the wilderness. I don't have this on my map but what that's saying is that as the army of the Israelites, the 600 of them was overlooking this Philistine army, they could see raiding parties going out to go plunder their their land and, and pillage and do whatever else Philistine armies did to their countrymen and they went north towards Ophrah, they went west towards whatever the other one, Shual, and they went east towards the, the, the land of Zebuim. They just hadn't come south yet, which is where the nation, the army of Israel is. So not only are they looking at this overwhelming army, but they're seeing like those armies send out raiding parties to just ravage their country, and they're completely unable to do anything about it because there's only 600 of them. Then it gets worse. Verse 19, and no blacksmith was found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, his hoe, and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel of for the plowshares, the mattocks and the forks and the axes and to fix the hose. So it came about that on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. So what they're saying there is that out of this army of 600 people, this like army that they called together, there was only two swords. Saul had a sword, Jonathan had a sword. Everybody else has like pitchforks, axes and hose, right? And that the Philistines for years have been gouged, price gouging them every time they wanted to get them sharpened. So they're probably not even sharp like pitch axes, axes, and hoes. So now you have this like really pathetic view of things. Like you have this army of Israel that numbers 600 men armed with pitchforks and the well equipped, like overwhelming Philistine army. And the the chapter ends like with this ominous tone and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash, which is, I have it on the map there. And we're going to, I'm going to show you a picture of it next week, but the, a garrison again, is only about 500 men. So you have this massive army of the Philistines over in Michmash and they send this garrison beginning to work their way south to like secure the pass. The, the pass would have been a place where they could overlook the battlefield, where, where uh, they could secure at least one of the avenues of escape. So the Philistines now controlled the pass. They began to make their move no. southward, and things are going to go badly. From every human standpoint, things are hopeless. You've got an army of 600 with pitchforks against the Philistines. That's where the story leaves us hanging. Stay tuned next week. Will King Saul be swept away? Right? Like, if I was part of the nation of Israel, I would be terrified, especially if I knew what Samuel had told Saul. Saul, your kingdom is going to come to an end. God's going to replace you. And one thing I have to hand it to Saul, at least he showed up on the battlefield. I would have been like, all right, I resign. I'm over on the east side of the Jordan peace, right? So anybody else with me, Right? I mean, Saul showed up, but it's hopeless, but it's not. The reason why is because there was this promise back in verse um, 13. You have acted foolishly. You have not kicked up the commandment of the Lord, which he commanded now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever but now your kingdom shall not endure the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have kept you have not kept what the Lord commanded you The the promise is this is that God will not abandon His people. We saw that last week. That God, God is going to bring a righteous king who will deliver them from their enemies. And in fact, like they won't be destroyed like as a nation by this army because God, like, has promised that there will be this king. And He talks about this kingdom that will be forever. It's a really interesting expression, like this eternal kingdom. Like all of us have that like longing for the eternal kingdom within us, right? We want to we live it, like where, where life is secure, where, where there's justice and peace and, and where it allows me to like live a life where I can just flourish, right? Where, where a king reigns over us and protects us and no enemies come up against us. As that idea of this eternal kingdom develops through the scriptures, it's, it, it, it begins to be called the kingdom of God. Like, one day, God will reign over his people. He will reign forever. That, like, our relationship with God, like, atonement will be made so that my relationship with God, like, is restored instead of being separated. Like, there will be a priest who comes and restores that part of it. One day, there will be a king who comes and, like, overthrows our greatest enemies. Like, even though this situation is hopeless for them, like, God had promised he wouldn't abandon his people and he would bring in a righteous king. And that expression, a man after his own heart, like, again, if you've been in the church, like, capital C Church for a while, like, your mind probably instantly connects that to David. Because David's called that later on. But David knows it's ultimately not about him either. Turn with me to Psalm 110. It's uh, Psalms, it's like right in the middle of the Bible's, Right in the middle of your Bible is usually, it's a, that's a big book too, so you should be able to find it. Psalm 110 is a psalm that David wrote. Let me get there in my notes. And listen to what he says. I'll wait till you get there. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. Let me just stop there for a second. Uh, Jesus himself, when he was talking to the Pharisees, quotes this passage and applies it to him. And he, he asks this question. He says... In in Psalm 110 verse 1, David says this, the Lord says to my Lord, David speaking. So God himself says to the one that I'm going to submit to, my Lord, rule in the midst of your enemies. Is that what it it says next? Oh, sit at my right hand. And that was confusing in Psalm 2. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You know, the, the the whole Bible like consistently applies that to Jesus, and Jesus applied it to himself when he asked the Pharisees, like, how is it that like the coming Messiah, the coming king, is simultaneously a descendant of David and David's Lord? And the Pharisees like blew their minds, they couldn't answer the question. But what David's doing here is he's saying, like, this promise of a person that God has chosen to rule over his people, that is that that will it be the perfect expression of God's heart for his kingdom. Yeah, it's going to be foreshadowed in David, but David points us to, David just passes that baton and points us to somebody else, the king who's going to rule until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And then he says this in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at thy right hand, and he will shatter kings in the day of the wrath, and he will judge among the nations, and he will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head." But verse 4 is really, really important because David's talking about this coming king and then he says he's also what? A priest. You have in this story of, of Saul, a king who overstepped his boundaries and acted like a priest and whose kingdom was stripped away from him. Right? That's what we just read. But in Psalm 110, you have the opposite happening with this coming descendant of David. You have... You have the Lord Himself functioning as both King and Priest, who will reign and judge and rule forever. He will solve all of our like atonement problems. He will he will be able to atone for our sins. He'll intercede with us. God. He'll report, repair our relationship with God, and he'll bring in the good and righteous and just rule upon the earth. The the prophet Zechariah speaks of it in Zechariah chapter six. I have it on the screen. This is what the Lord's saying. Thus says to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Do you see that he's going to be both a priest in the temple and he's going to be the sit on his throne. Thus, he will be both priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Like Saul is a negative, a, a negative illustration here of the coming King. Who's going to solve every problem that we have physically, nationally, spiritually, and we're called to submit to him as King. You know the reality is. The reality is, is, like who are you looking to to bring in the kingdom of God? Who are you looking to to satisfy those longings of yourself? To, of security, of, of, uh, atonement. Where are you looking to try to fix what's most bra- wrong about you? What do you? Who are you looking to to like bring you security and safety and peace and flourishing? Are you gonna? What did, he, what did the text say last week? Don't depart to the right or to the left because those things can neither profit nor deliver. There's one. His name is Jesus Christ, the one who is both priest and king, the one who, who brings in everything that God has for us, who intercedes for us and, and will lead his people to victory. Jeremy, why don't you come up to close us? As he does, I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse 23. You can turn there if you want. I don't have it on the screen, I don't think. Hebrews chapter 7. That's what it talks about, the the old priesthood, because when when Psalm 110 speaks about being a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, it's this really weird uh, allusion to back in Genesis that what God had said is that the descendants of Aaron would be the priests. And Jesus was not a descendant of Aaron. But there's this one passage back in Genesis where there's this other priesthood, and we don't know the lineage of that priesthood at all. And the, and the writer of Hebrews makes the case in chapters 6 and 7 that, that Jesus comes from that line of priesthood because he has neither beginning nor end. And then he says this, starting in verse 23, and the former priests, guys like Samuel, on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, Jesus, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He's king too. Who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people because he did once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever you know it's it's the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ that has secured our redemption he sits exalted above the heavens at the right hand of God until all of his enemies be made f- footstool for his feet he always lives to intercede for us and he just calls us to like follow him follow him at, like in accordance with his word and worship him with all of our heart like in truth so jeremy why don't you close us then i'll we'll close us in prayer but i just thank you for your your word and how you govern over your people through your word and how you have sent your king to to deliver us and to redeem us and to to bring in your kingdom and and we can be people of hope because of that promise not not only hopeful but that we have hope like sure and steadfast and one that enters with into your presence and one that's secured for us by the blood of jesus and and father i just pray that the the thing that we just sang that you are all that we need would would truly be the cry of our heart that we would turn to you, we would look for you, we would follow you, we would be a part of your kingdom and your people, and we would be about your purposes until the day that you return. Thank you for your grace and your mercy to us, your, um, yeah, just being a God who is so quick to forgive and who is faithful to the end and, and who will not abandon us even when we, uh, when we fail you so often. We pray these things in Jesus' name.